This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. As you know, this is not a sports show, so I don't often report on anything sports-related. But in this case, I'm going to make an exception because I'm very glad to see that after Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, announced that they would no longer be playing the national anthem at home games, that the NBA came along and reversed it. I mean, that was that was really good. The NBA came along on Wednesday saying the national anthem will be played in arenas in keeping with longstanding league policy after Mark Cuban revealed he had decided not to play it before his team's home games this season. This is via AP. The league's initial reaction to Cuban's decision was to say teams were free to conduct pregame activities as they wished with the unusual circumstances created by the coronavirus. Most NBA teams, by the way, don't have fans at home games right now, but the NBA abruptly reversed course with Cuban's decision reverberating around the country. In other words, this got people mad, as well it should. We're about done with social justice, those of us who are thinking clearly on the matter. We're about done. I was about done years ago, but most people have had it with the social justice stuff, with the race baiting, etc. People are done. They're tired of the critical race theory, the intersectionality, the identity politics, all of the whining, all of the complaining. They're having a hard time reconciling people complaining about the United States when they're making millions of dollars as basketball players. It's a little bit irreconcilable. Why aren't you grateful for the country that affords you the opportunity to be such a huge success? Why aren't you happy about your own country? Here's something else that is of note. Mark Cuban is the same guy who was confronted not too long ago by Megyn Kelly about China and the genocide that China has been committing against the Uyghurs, and he wouldn't condemn it. Because just two days earlier, before that interview, according to Variety, Cuban was, uh, I should say, China, and the biggest broadcaster in China, had decided to reverse its year-long ban on airing NBA games. So it's a little awkward when you're in China's back pocket to be saying, I don't really think I'm going to openly condemn genocide against Uyghurs. People in China, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, that's a little awkward. Why would I condemn genocide? I mean, come on, we're we're against all human rights abuses, right? Because all human rights abuses are absolutely equal. Why in the world would you be opposed to concentration camps? Good grief. What is this? The 30s? I mean, I'm not kidding you here. This is the irony. This is the incredible hypocrisy of a lot of people in the NBA. You're not grateful for the United States. You hate the United States so much that you don't want to, you know, got to take a knee. You don't want to sing the national anthem. You don't want to be grateful to be an American. But boy, you better not say anything mean about China. Just saying. So this is kind of interesting. I'm looking at this 
article. I have to share this with you, though, because this is the woke mind. This is your mind on woke. This is a guy by the name of Kevin Williams who writes over at the Chicago Tribune. And before the NBA reversed this, which didn't take very long, about a day, he wrote a column called Mark Cuban is taking the brave and right path by no longer playing the national anthem before Dallas Mavericks home games. Excuse me, what is brave about not playing the national anthem? Why is that brave? Here's what he says. In 2017, after the latest NFL anthem kerfuffle, my view was that the anthem has no place in a workplace. Is that what it is now? I mean, when you're in your cubicle at work or you're driving around in your car as a salesman or whatever it is you do for a living, I mean, do you have people looking in on you? So if you sing the anthem... People are singing it along with you. I mean, this isn't a workplace. The the NBA, or in the case of the NFL, it's not a workplace. It's a televised sports event. It's not a workplace. He says, your business doesn't play it before the start of a workday. Mine doesn't either. The NBA, NFL, and NHL are workplaces to the athletes and other personnel who comprise the structure of those leagues. Yet the anthem is something else entirely. An overt expression of national pride and fidelity. My view on its appropriateness hasn't changed in the years since. And he takes himself back three years, four, four years, as it as it were. The NFL and other professional sports are in the middle of a firestorm of patriotism because of player actions during the playing of the national anthem. Players are using the occasion to protest. Teams are considering forcing players to stand. The president has turned it into a flashpoint. Everybody is fighting over a few minutes of music, but nobody is asking whether in the context of the business of a corporate money-making enterprise, its use is appropriate. You're missing the entire point, buddy. You're missing the entire point. This is something that has been done for decades. Singing the national anthem. Why would that be controversial? Why would that be controversial? And to try to say it's about making sure that the workplace isn't marred or something. I mean, like, well, how is that? How is that a problem? Now, he says in 2017, the anthem dispute had its foundation in in players kneeling. And since then, a very different kind of kneeling has roiled America when a police officer knelt on the neck of a black man until he died, kneeling in a way that many believed mimicked the gesture made famous by social justice activist and former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. In the wake of a nation erupting in a cry for social justice, everything changed, including sports. Yeah, I remember what changed after the terrible killing of George Floyd, the death of George Floyd, which was tragic. I remember a lot of looting. I remember rioting. I remember fires being set. I remember people being killed. Yeah, people people were changed forever by that. Not in a good way. It brought more racial division, more people going into the streets and wreaking havoc, and we haven't recovered from it since. How is this good for the United States? And then he says... Stick to sports no longer was possible, as so many black athletes realized that they were a traffic stop and some aggression away from being George Floyd. Okay, that's just not honest. <laughs> it's not honest. If you watch that entire video of George Floyd, remember what precipitated George Floyd actually getting into a kerfuffle with the police officers? And I'm not justifying what happened. I'm not justifying the fact that he died. It was terrible. I'm not, I'm not 
making any comment along those lines. But George Floyd did not cooperate with the police. Let's just keep that in view. And then he talks about the WNBA taking a stand and it helped propel a black candidate to the U.S. Senate from Georgia, displacing the white incumbent who is also the team's owner. And black athletes spoke out and marched and made a difference. But the idea of patriotism also has changed. Not only in the wake of a January insurrection that many claimed was protecting the Constitution. Who said that? You had a couple of outliers. You had several outliers who were arrested and they should have been arrested for breaching the Capitol. But it wasn't an insurrection. Proponents of Blue Lives Matter, a diametric opposite of Black Lives Matter, adapted the U.S. flag in creating its banner so often seen at events in opposition to social justice, including the storming of the Capitol. What is patriotism and what does it mean now? Is it protest? Is it lockstep adherence to a social system that most benefits a certain part of America? Do you get the feeling that this guy has an axe to grind here? These questions are rightly being asked as a nation wrestles with a legacy of injustice and the reactions of the oppressed. You know what? Life isn't fair. Life is terrible. But we have done some wonderful things in this country to right wrongs. We fought a civil war to stop slavery and praise the Lord that it was stopped because that was wrong and it was evil to take people as slaves. We also passed some legislation in 1964, the Civil Rights Act. And that was a necessary piece of legislation in order to make sure that by your skin color, you were sent to one water fountain or one place on the bus over another. And that was wrong too. And we fixed that. Whenever there has been a major problem relating to unfairness under the law for people who are black versus white or Hispanic or what have you, we have reacted, I believe, in the right way where we have fixed the laws. We have overturned court decisions that have been wrong. What is the deal? What, where does it end? And this is why so many people are fed up with the woke stuff, because it doesn't end. And now we know it doesn't end. And I'm so happy that Kevin Williams is just not getting his way this time, talking about the bravery of getting rid of the national anthem. You know, all that would happen to the NBA is it would lose millions of more viewers, and rightly so. So, the NBA... I salute you for doing what you did. Now, speak out for the Uyghurs, would you? We'll be back. When I found out I was pregnant, I was devastated. I had no idea what to do. When a young mom faces an unplanned pregnancy, she's confused and scared. Society tells her that a baby is not a life and offers termination as the best solution. Preborn centers shine light into the darkness by offering young moms in crisis hope, love, and life and an ultrasound to meet their preborn baby. As soon as I get there, I felt welcome. They gave me the first look at my baby by providing a free ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229 or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The health 
healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I want to talk about some other injustice. This involves a pastor up in Canada. I don't know if you heard about this. We haven't been doing every single church's you know, problems with police all over the world concerning the COVID-19 pandemic shutdowns. But in Canada, they're so draconian up there anyway. They're worse than we are. Well, at least some parts of the United States. But there is a pastor by the name of James Coates. He is the pastor of a church called Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta. And this church has been really pushing back against the COVID-19 restrictions. And from what I've read about this particular church and the particular restrictions, rightly so. I've been saying this for the better part of a year, that we are very concerned, obviously, about COVID-19. We don't want people to get sick, but you can stay home and you can isolate as much as you feel is necessary based on your circumstances. But at a certain point, at least here in the United States, we must assert, and this is more important, We must assert our freedom to be able to conduct public worship as we see fit without interference from the state, period. Because we have seen during the pandemic what happens when the state gets out of control. Uh, I'm looking at you, Gavin Newsom, and I'm looking at you, Andrew Cuomo. So just a couple of examples there. We've got that issue going on. This Edmonton area pastor, though, has been arrested. Arrested. He was arrested by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and charged in contravention of Section 73.1 of the Public Health Act for being over capacity and failing to adhere to physical distancing requirements. No kidding. This is from the Canadian News. After defying Alberta's COVID-19 rules and Alberta Health Services orders for several weeks in a row, they got him. He's been arrested. Yep. They're going after the hard criminals there in Canada. You be sure to go after a man of God for daring to get together and worshiping the Lord in a public place. Don't you know there are germs in that building? Well, if you don't like COVID-19, stay home. You can stream it live. They've been doing live streaming. Or you can, you know, read your Bible at home and you can take care. You can put on some masks and you can show up at a church where they allow two people or what have you. You don't have to go to this church, but why shouldn't he have the freedom? And why shouldn't that congregation have the freedom to gather as the Lord has commanded? Do not forsake the assembling together of believers, especially when you look at what the data says on COVID-19 about people dying. We don't like any deaths, but there are an awful lot of people, way more people who survive this. 
This is by by the standards of pandemics throughout human history, which did not have vaccines. This is a pretty mild one. And I'm not trying to say that to minimize the suffering and pain of any family who's lost, lost a loved one. But death also is part of life. A lot of people have died from flu. A lot of people have died from all sorts of things. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And I'm not trying to be callous by saying that either. I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. At some point, life has to get back to normal. And we have to understand that life is a risk and you take the risk that you are comfortable with. And for people who are comfortable going back to church, they should be allowed to do it. That's been my position all along. That's still my position. But I think it's off the rails that a pastor is being arrested for trying to get back to the business of being a Christian and shepherding the flock and bringing people together for public worship. That's his job. That is his job. Now, I I went back and I was listening to a sermon that he gave back in December, and he went into some of the reasons that he is doing what he is doing. Here was Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church of Edmonton back in December. This is cut one. The question is this, are we permitted to gather at present? Are we permitted by our government to gather at present? In fact, we could say it like this, Have we been permitted to gather at any point by our government in nearly 10 months? Think about that for a moment. You realize it's been nearly 10 months since some churches have been together physically for a gathering. 10 months. We haven't necessarily felt that because we've been gathering. But there are churches that for nearly 10 months have altered the way they gather corporately to the extent that I would say they aren't gathering corporately. And for some reason, Christians have really struggled with this one. Pastors have really struggled with this one. I was on a call with a number of pastors, upwards of 90 of them, and I didn't take a survey, so I don't know how many of them felt this way, but the voices that spoke were incredibly thankful that Jason Kenney were permitting them to gather at a third capacity. What a kindness. How kind of Jason Kenney to allow us to gather at a third capacity, as if Jason Kenney is the head of the church. Now, just for your information, Jason Kenney is the premier of Alberta. And he's right. He's right. What what authority does Jason Kenney have over the church? And he goes on to explain some of the restrictions here. This is cut to. The obvious answer is no, we're not permitted to gather. That's why the RCMP was here today. The RCMP was here, along with AHS, because we're not permitted to gather. They do not permit us to gather. You say, but James, we're allowed to gather at 15%. Okay, you're right. We're allowed to have a gathering, but we aren't allowed to have the gathering. Again, for 10 months now, the government has forbid us from corporate worship. To be compliant, we as elders must tell a significant portion of the body They can't worship. Think about that. As under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being told by the government to tell the flock of Christ, sorry, you can't worship today. It's not safe. The government says so. That is pastoral malpractice. That is the difficulty for us. Struggling to tell people, no, You can't worship today. No, you got to worship online. Do we have that authority? Can we tell people they're not allowed to worship? 
that the people of Christ here at Grace Life, for which we're responsible, that they aren't allowed to come and worship? You say, but James, that's what you did when the pandemic began. You're right. And it was born out of ignorance. Ignorance about the virus? Ignorance about what a proper response to our government is in a situation like this? And it was incredibly difficult. Well, it was. And what is never stressed enough, in my opinion, is the fact that has been brought up by a number of pastors here in the United States who have fought these important legal battles over opening the churches during the pandemic. And that is this. There is more to life than worrying about every germ that could potentially get you. I'm not saying that's not a concern. It is a concern. And people try to be careful and people try to socially distance and people wear their masks. I'm getting a little tired of that. Uh, especially given the data on the masks. But the important thing to remember is that man does not live by bread alone. I mean, this is not an exact comparison, but when Jesus was talking about that, he was referencing the fact that we live by every word out of the mouth of God. Gathered worship is incredibly important. Look at all the stories that are circulating about people who have committed suicide because they were so isolated during the pandemic or dropped out of college or went back on drugs or ended up having another terrible bout of depression. People are suffering under these shutdowns and under these restrictions. People need to be in church. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. My goodness, is the spiritual health worth that little to the state? I would imagine the answer is yes, it's worth that little. But that's why the church has to push back. That's why I'm so impressed with people like this particular pastor who is willing to be arrested for the good of his congregation and obedience to God rather than towing the party line because he just didn't want to get into trouble. And I'll tell you something else. This church has really been fighting for a long time. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, this story says, have monitored Sunday morning activity at this church for several weekends in a row after the Alberta Health Services issued a work order on December 17th, which was escalated to a closure order at the end of January. This is how serious these people are getting against Grace Life Church. They closed it. Your, your church is now closed. You have no right to close the Church of Jesus Christ, Alberta. And this church is right for pushing back. Uh, and I want to get to this cut as well, where James Coates talks about how difficult it's been to be a pastor during the pandemic when you have all of these congregations shut down. This is cut three. Put yourself in my shoes. How, how do I shepherd people I can't even see? I was coming here and preaching sermons to a camera. I would get home and I can recall just taking my suit coat off and hanging up my jacket and just wondering, what in the world are we doing? To, to prepare all week long to minister the word of God to God's people, and I can't even see them. Couldn't even see you. Didn't have any opportunity to interact with you after the service. Didn't get to see you interacting with the body. Didn't get to see the other elders interacting with you as well. We refuse to tell people of this body they can't come. Our responsibility as shepherds is to open our doors. We are opening our doors to worship. I told AHS this morning, we don't know if we're gonna be compliant today because we don't know whether or not you're gonna come. That's up to you, you're adults, you're well informed. You know the nature of the situation legally, you know the nature of it medically. You understand you're here because you wanna worship. I'm not gonna make that call for you. And so really, this is the critical component that people need to understand. 
If you disagree with the way we're handling things, this is, the, this is the nub right here. This is the jugular. Our responsibility as shepherds is to open our doors, to facilitate God's people coming together in worship. And I like what they say on their website in this public statement. We are gravely concerned that COVID-19 is being used to fundamentally alter society and strip us all of our civil liberties. By the time the so-called pandemic is over... If it is ever permitted to be over, Albertans will be utterly reliant on government instead of free, prosperous, and independent. Remember Patrick Henry's line, give me liberty or give me death. Do we still believe that? This pastor does and praise God for him. Pray for him. Pray for his church. And just thank the Lord that they're willing to stand on such an important principle. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. The Battle of the Bulge was that six-week assault that took place in late 1944 and early 1945, and it has been called the greatest American battle of the war. It was Hitler's last major offensive against the Western Front, and Germany's failure in that battle was key to the ultimate victory for the Allies. But Hitler's Wehrmacht, his armed forces, were smashed on both the Eastern and Western Fronts in 1944, an untold story that is chronicled in a new book by military historian Dr. Samuel Mitchum, Jr. He's author of more than 40 books, mostly about World War II. He served as an Army helicopter pilot during the Vietnam War and is also a former visiting professor at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. Today, we'll be talking about his book called The Death of Hitler's War Machine, The Final Destruction of the Wehrmacht. And so good to have you with us, Dr. Mitchum. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Sure thing. Well, talk a little bit about the creation of these armed forces that swore unconditional obedience to Hitler. I know this was very interesting how this all came about. This was quite a large fighting force, right? Uh, yes. Um, even um, in the last year of the war, there were three million of them. Um, Germany drafted everybody, especially at the end, uh, children, grandfathers, it didn't matter. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> But um, it was uh, the best army in the world for a while. Uh, um, Hitler's foreign policy overextended what was possible for Germany. Uh, Little Germany is about the size of Texas. Uh, uh, Back then, it's smaller than that now. Uh, And that's a little bit too small to conquer uh, Europe and uh, much of Asia, which was Hitler's objective. Uh, Napoleon once said great empires die of indigestion, and I think that uh, adage applies to the Third Reich. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, what were the major military victories initially? Because I know later on there was the final destruction, but early on, what were some of the major battles that they were able to secure and win? And, and what was the fighting force like when it was in its earlier days? Um, it was uh, a high morale, extremely well uh, trained. Uh, the German generals were the best generals in uh, World War II, and I think that extended down to uh, uh, the ranks uh, up until the, the American uh, came in. Um, they, uh, you know, everywhere they went, they won. They defeated uh, uh, Poland. They absorbed. Austria and Czechoslovakia without fighting, they overran France, which was considered by many to be the best army in the world when it uh, ran up against uh, Germany. It actually had more tanks than Germany, and uh, some of them were better. Uh, It's just the way they employed them. Uh, It overran um, the Netherlands and Belgium and uh, uh, much of North Africa and uh, won some truly spectacular victories on the Eastern Front. They just weren't able to close the deal. Right. Uh, So they overextended themselves. Yeah, which yeah, which led to some really bad situations later on down the line. But as you're pointing out in your book, in 1944, they were fighting on the eastern and the western fronts. Talking about the Battle of the Bulge, that was obviously a really big turning point and, you know, not so good for Hitler, even though there were a lot of American lives lost. Talk a little bit, if you would, about why the Wehrmacht did not end up being able to secure that win, and what went wrong during that particular battle for the Germans? Well, I think uh, at the beginning of 1944, a reasonable observer could uh, come up with a scenario where Germany could have won the war. I think that it uh, ended when the D-Day invasion uh, was successful. Um, the, the chances, according to Field Marshal Modell, who was commanding on the Western Front, uh, at the Battle of the Bulge was maybe 10%. Uh, and um, it was, uh, I think, mishandled. Um, they, they, they lost their only chance, and the German soldier looked upon the Battle of the Bulge as a last-chance offensive. After that, um, especially after the Remagen Bridge was captured, German morale collapsed altogether in the West. Hmm. Um, Remagen was withstandable from a military point of view. We, we didn't conquer our part of Germany uh, as a, from the Remagen Bridgehead. Um, but it set up the Battle of the Ruhr Pocket, uh, where uh, we captured over 300,000 Germans. Oh. And the uh, our losses were only 17,000 casualties, many of whom recovered. Um, that was one of the most lopsided victories in, in history. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's when the Germans and the West were ready to do what they called the double Hitler salute. That's when they raised both hands in the air. Yeah. And um, in the East, it was entirely different. Um, it shows how terrorism can backfire on you. The Russians uh, were engaged in multiple rapes. Uh, golly, uh, in Berlin, uh, four out of every ten women was raped. Oh, my. Wow. Yeah, a city of 2.8 million. Uh, they had over 103,000 uh, 103, reported cases of venereal disease just in Berlin. 
Um, the civilians fled, and the army tried to give them time to escape. And in many cases, they were successful. Yeah. Although it was a desperate situation. I had a friend. Uh, she was a little girl growing up in East Prussia. Her father already had been killed on the Eastern Front. It was January. Temperature was zero degrees Fahrenheit. And she didn't have any shoes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I are adults. We can make our shoes go a little longer if we have to. We can repair them. doesn't work that way with kids. Their feet grow so they'll go fast. Right. Uh, so what our mother did um, was dip her feet in cow manure, let it harden, did it again <laughs> and again. And again, and she had cow patty shoes. Oh quite my literally. goodness! <laughs> and, she, and she she walked all the way across East Prussia, the Danzig corridor, Pomerania, and halfway across Brandenburg <laughs> in her uh, cow patty shoes. Never suffered the slightest health repercussions from. It. Goodness, that's uh, quite a story. <laughs> wow. yeah. Well, you're desperate. You're desperate when you got to wear for your shoes. No doubt about it. Well, you know, when you were talking about decreased morale in the German armed forces, it, one of the other things I've read had to do with some of the logistical weaknesses that the Wehrmacht was suffering from and strategic weaknesses. What was it that Hitler messed up, so to speak, when it came to commanding the Wehrmacht that led to this, you know, demise of the, of the strength of these armed forces? Well, uh, I think if he'd let his generals practice his trade, uh, uh, Nazi Germany might not have won the war, but uh, it, it might have at least survived it. Um, but um, Hitler, uh, like I said, overextended. Uh, he, uh, he, he, he got Nazi uh, Germany uh, fighting most of the world, and, uh, even though they are a warlike people. Uh, Nobody's that good. No. <laughs> Stretched a bit thin and, then, yes, that's right. And then the logistics was really bad. The Allied bombings destroyed uh, the uh, petrochemical industry. They uh, and In the last uh, months of the war, the German uh, army put out a, a field manual, how to drain the tank of a damaged panzer under enemy fire. Hmm. Now, if you've got to empty a gas tank while somebody's shooting at you, uh, things are pretty bad. Yeah, that doesn't sound very effective. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, uh, they were running out of everything. That's what caused the loss. North Africa was a supply line collapse. I talked to a man who uh, was there at the end, uh, and they uh, uh, fueled their uh, panzers with Tunisian wine. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's and amazing. It actually went forward. I asked him about it. He said, oh, yeah, the engine smoked and sputtered, but uh, that's what we had for fuel. We, we went into battle with it. Now. Good grief. Well, I'll tell you what, we need to pause for a short break. Dr. Samuel Mitchum, Jr. with us. The Death of Hitler's War Machine is his book. We'll come back to the discussion. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Stay with us.
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended in most states. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up for Liberty HealthShare. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not an insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT or 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, any of us who have studied World War II will know about the Battle of the Bulge, but what about some of the critical battles that followed and forced Germany into submission? How much do we know about that? It's covered in a new book called The Death of Hitler's War Machine by my guest, Dr. Samuel Mitchum, Jr., military historian. Tell us about this most brutal battle, Dr. Mitchum. This is the Soviet siege of Budapest, known as the Stalingrad of the Waffen-SS, which is quite a mouthful, but can you tell us about this battle? What was significant about it? Well, uh, it, the armed SS, which was a party formation, um, included some of Germany's uh, best equipped and um, best, uh, best units, uh, true believers in the Nazi ideology. Uh, now, they didn't have a lot of tanks at uh, Budapest. They had assault, uh, assault guns. But um, there were 33,000 of them, and the Russians uh, uh, threw in army after army against these guys, and they fought tooth and nail. Hmm. And uh, there were 33,000 of them when uh, the battle began. Uh, When it ended, about 800 of them escaped. Um, Most of those who were taken prisoner never saw home again. Hmm. Uh, It was... um, hand-to-hand fighting in the streets. Uh, it was uh, a terrible battle, and uh, um, they, they lost two uh, SS divisions. They lost two elite panzer divisions, and it, it was a major body blow. Uh, Hitler foolishly sent most of his panzers from the Berlin sector, the Army Group Vistula sector, 
south to try to rescue Budapest, and they weren't able to do it. And uh, that left uh, Berlin exposed. And the Russians, uh, the Germans had 400,000 men. The Russians attacked them with 2.2 million men. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the major assault areas, they had an artillery density of uh, 420 guns per mile. Oh, wow. And um, they they, uh, had one of the most tremendous bombardments in world history against German front lines. But this is what happens when you have a good general. General Hauricki was the commander of the German forces there, and he had a reputation for uh, uh, having a fingertip sense of what to do on a defensive battle. And he would always withdraw his troops just before the big blow came. And um, he did this again in the Battle of Berlin, and they um, they blew away... um, uh, mile after mile of German front, but the German front had moved. It was uh, one or two miles behind where it had been the day before, and they wasted their bombardment. Hmm. It, it made it even worse. They created a uh, landscape that looked like the moon, uh, shell craters. They sent their tanks forward. It was muddy, and uh, many of them got stuck in the uh, shell craters, and the Germans knocked them out, too. Oh, wow. uh, uh, Stalin figured he'd be in uh, Berlin in three to four days. It took him over two weeks. Goodness, that's amazing. Um, but <laughs> it was, yeah, it was uh, the most amazing tactical event, in my view, uh, was some most Americans have never heard of. There was a general named Nehring, Walter Nehring, who uh, previously commanded the Africa Corps until he was wounded. Um, he, uh, he commanded the 24th Panzer Corps in the Eastern Front and uh, was surrounded by seven uh, Russian armies. He was outnumbered at least 10 to 1 and probably more like 15 to 1. And he created a pocket, a, a circular defense, and moved it all the way across East Prussia under constant attack from seven different armies. Hmm. And he reached German lines. And by the time he got there, there were more people, uh, civilians, in the pocket than there were soldiers around it. Um, like I said, it was a, a military genius. Um, and Hitler promoted him to uh, a Panzer Army Command after that. Wow. Well, but, it's it's interesting, though, when you're saying how, you know, how these things kind of unfolded and Hitler's, you know, guidance of the Wehrmacht. Ultimately, one of the things you discuss is how his foreign policy impacted the Wehrmacht. How does that intersect with some of these battles that they fought on the Western and Eastern fronts? How did Hitler's foreign policy ultimately, you know, go so wrongly that it impacted his own armed forces? Well, um he got involved in war with too many people, and uh, he treated the uh, occupied countries, uh, many of them badly, and this created guerrilla movements. Uh, he responded incorrectly to those. Uh, uh, he just um, bit off more than he could chew, to use a colloquial expression. And one... Uh, interesting aspect of my book. I talk about the naval evacuation of East Prussia. It was uh, truly amazing. East Prussia had uh, about 3 million people. 
And uh, between East Prussia and Pomerania, they they evacuated 2,022,000 by sea. And this led to the greatest maritime disaster in world history. Mm. Uh, Wilhelm Gustloff, they, uh, it was rated for 1,800 people, including crew. Uh, but they put 10,580 people on that ship, and uh, it was torpedoed uh, 25 miles offshore. And the temperature was uh, uh, was a cold winter. It was about zero degrees Fahrenheit. And um, it sank in 45 minutes, and uh, it was a greater disaster than any maritime disaster in history. They lost five times more people on the Wilhelm Gustloff than they lost on the Titanic. That's amazing. What, what yeah. Do you, yeah, what do you think when you're looking back at all of this important history and we're looking, you know, there's a lot of talk about Hitler these days, kind of erroneously, in my opinion, when people love to invoke Hitler for every enemy they encounter on the Internet. But why does this matter, would you say, for us today when we're looking at how the Wehrmacht ultimately was destroyed and Hitler was destroyed? How do you take that fact and really kind of drive that home to us today as something historical for us to remember that that's important in our own day? Well, uh, it shows what can happen when you have a dictator who becomes unstable, and many of them do. Um, I got a copy of Hitler's uh, doctor's medical journal, Hmm. and he... um, he was a walking time bomb. Uh, matter of fact, I got a, a daughter or a friend of mine owns her own medical corporation. And uh, she had some of the physicians that work under her research uh, uh, what these drugs were at no cost to myself. Uh, sometimes you get lucky as a historian because she would do anything for her daddy. And uh, <laughs> it, it turns out uh, that, uh, you know, uh, he had a vitamin toxicity. He was taking so many vitamins, it would have killed him probably in a year or two. Uh, he was addicted to amphetamines or speed. Mm-hmm. And uh, what blew me away was the active ingredients in his eye drops was cocaine. Oh, wow. And he took ni- up to 19 applications of the eye drops per day. That's uh, three or four drops in each eye per application. That's crazy. Um, He was, and this partially explains his irrational behavior. That's true. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, uh, you never knew what you were going to get. General Velding walked in in order to report to Hitler, and the first words out of Hitler's mouth are, Velding, I will have you shot. (laughs) And uh, by the end of the interview, uh, uh, Hitler was actually friendly to General Velding, and... uh, gave him command of um, Berlin. He was the last commandant of Berlin. And Belding walked out of the uh, Fuhrer briefing, turned to another general and said, I think I would have preferred if he had had me shot. Oh, my. (laughs) Well, you know, and it just goes to show you, like you said, when you you just have to pay attention to history so you don't repeat it. And what happens when a dictator becomes unstable and he has cocaine in his eye drops like you were discussing? I mean, things go terribly wrong. And it just points out, you know, a lot about the arrogance of man, the idea that he could, you know, uh, change the world and rule the world. Didn't turn out that way for Adolf Hitler. And thank God for that. But you can read all about it in the book. It's 
It's called The Death of Hitler's War Machine, The Final Destruction of the Wehrmacht by Dr. Samuel Mitchum Jr. And so good to have you here, Dr. Mitchum. We really appreciate your spending time with us and schooling us a little bit on this important sector of German history. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. It's always our pleasure to have you along and we'll see you next time.